Hey, it's the Productized Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you, as always, for tuning in today. And if you're enjoying this show or any of the shows before this one, I'd really appreciate it if you head over to iTunes, hit the five-star review, give it a rating. You don't even have to leave a comment or anything, but it would really help help me out and help the show out and help us, you know, connect with more folks just like us. All right. So today I'm talking to Ryan Buckley. Great conversation. Really kind of a roller coaster ride of a story here. Um, really good one. And, uh, you know, I met Ryan at, at MicroConf recently. We had a brief chat and I was like, wow, there's a lot of a lot of things I want to kind of follow up on. So might as well record it, right? And let you guys listen in too. So Ryan is uh, now the founder of three different small SaaS apps that he was able to code and build himself. But before all that, he built scripted.com, which was a uh, venture-backed uh, platform, a marketplace, if you will, for hiring writers, something I, <laughs> I know a thing or two about uh, as I'm building audience ops. So it was interesting to hear the kind of a roller coaster ride of a story behind that one. And but mainly the thing that really drew me to meeting Ryan and, and learning all about him is his concept, which he's written an entire book about called parallel entrepreneurship, or the idea of running different businesses simultaneously, and even growing multiple businesses simultaneously and how to balance how to uh, double or triple up on your resources and return on those time investments. Um, so again, as always, we cover a lot of ground. And here you go. Here's my conversation with Ryan Buckley. Enjoy. All right, Ryan Buckley, how's it going? I'm doing well, man. Good to be here. Yeah, great to uh, connect with you again. We just met recently at MicroConf for the first time in Vegas a couple of weeks ago and uh, started to have some good conversations there. But as always happens every year at MicroConf, I don't get to talk to enough people for as long as I want to. So why don't we just kind of continue the conversation and get into the story of everything that you're working on? And yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah great show. Um, that was my first microconf, and I'm so glad that I went. I, I had a feeling I was going to meet the right kind of people there. Um, it's not a cheap ticket, but I think that serves a purpose. Totally, in a way, like literally every person I met there was like, "That's the kind of entrepreneur that I really want to meet right now." Absolutely. I'm not even a huge uh, conference goer myself, but that's the one that I always like plan my whole year around is, is making it to Vegas. Awesome. Well, you know, what really uh, struck me is your book and you did an attendee talk on the topic of what you call parallel entrepreneurship, which I understand is kind of like working on multiple businesses or, you know, parallel paths at the same time. Um, something I've certainly been thinking a lot about. So, I mean, why don't we start there? Like, tell us, like, what what is the snapshot of what you're working on today? The multiple things you're working on today, and then we can go back and get the backstory. Yeah. So right now, um, majority of my income comes from Tufer.com. That's T-O-O-F-R. That um, helps sales reps, recruiters, B two B marketers find email addresses for people that they want to prospect to. It's also the problem of you have like an incomplete contact record. You, you've read about somebody in an article. You find a directory of people you want to reach out to, but uh, usually it's just going to be first name, last name, and the company where they work. And you want to reach them. So what do you do? Um, try to figure out an email address. And there are ways of brute forcing it. There are services you can go to purchase lists. This is sort of an alternative. You give it those three pieces of information, first name, last name, company, and uh, I built an app that will test permutations of that and return the email address that um, appears to be the correct one. That's awesome. And just to be, because we were just talking about this off air, you built this from start to finish, you coded it and everything? Yeah. So this was my first coding project. Very cool. But not your first business. Not my first business. No, we can we can cover that. And, and that sort of segues into the whole parallel entrepreneurship thing about why I was really glad to have Tufer as a side project when my venture backed business, despite all of our best efforts and having a really great team and really great investors uh, just didn't work out. So fast forwarding to today, it's it's Tufer, um, Enlistio, I-N-L-I-S-T-I-O, figures out your current um, job info, solves another problem for sales and marketers where the data in your CRM just kind of goes stale. Uh, people leave about 3% of your CRM generally per month will become obsolete. And it's a problem when your sales reps are trying to reach someone who's not there anymore. 
So I figured out a way to get current um, employment information and then feed that back. And then another one that actually launched while I was at MicroConf is a city government tracking poll app called Vox Loca. And City of Cupertino became our first customer there. And it's a way for cities to do polling via text message. So instead of dialing out those like annoying, hey, do you have 10 minutes? Do you want to like um, give us a bunch of feedback on these issues and questions and kind of testing language even? It's really expensive for cities to do. So I built a, a tool that does that via text message for uh, you get more data for less or roughly the same amount of money, but just less headache for sure. And, uh, and that that's, one. That's interesting. Yeah. And I just got my first like couple customers on that one. That's awesome. I mean, you know, just just talking about like polls and surveys in general, like, you know, you follow like politics or anything, you hear all all about these polls. And I'm like, where are these polls really happening? I never get called for a poll, probably because I don't ever answer phone numbers that I don't recognize. And well, if your voter file, it's that's that's the big secret. Not so secret, but if you have registered to vote and you put your phone number or email address, which are optional. Huh. I must have left those off when I registered. Yeah. Then the pollsters won't get you. Yeah. Yeah. But but I mean, I, you know, I got to imagine that the results of those polls are not accurate because you're only talking to people who happen to fill out those numbers and actually pick up the phone and, and actually participate. Whereas right. if you're doing text messaging, I'm sure you'll you'll get a more accurate sample of the population. Our response rate was awesome. Like that would be the case study. Like that'll be the main metric that we'll use to to go to other cities, but it was like through the roof compared to traditional polling and I'm super excited about that. Very cool. All right, so these three twofer Enlistio, Vox Loca, again was this all you like yeah. like simple software you coded it up, you designed, built it, launched it? Yeah. So, um I use the same stack over and over and over again. Um I often share files between them like why write another stripe wrapper what's your stack of choice yeah so it is sorry i guess starting from the ground up heroku for hosting gotten like really really good at that within the heroku system i use the postgres database which is a uh, type of sql like you kind of have a few sql options but postgres seems to be the leading contender right now so i use that and then Ruby on Rails is the uh, like the web framework within the Ruby on Rails ecosystem. I use like all the major major like devices for authentication. Yeah, that's that's probably actually the biggest one. Like if I were just to spin something up, it would have those things. On the front end, um, Bootstrap. I'm unfortunately this is like kind of my Achilles heel. It's a weakness. I'm not a great UI UX. I love Bootstrap. Like I, I mean, I, I come from a front end background, and I've really just adopted Bootstrap as my framework of choice that I could totally customize it to my heart's content because I know how the grid is is laid out in Bootstrap and all that. Yeah, I want to get better at customizing Bootstrap, but um, for the most part, it's just like out of the box kind of stuff. I don't really do hardcore JavaScript. You know, the page is just going to reload. Like, yeah. And, and like, sorry for the non-technical folks here. I've got a couple of like technical questions here. I'm curious though, like, so you chose not to like get into like JavaScript frameworks, like, I don't know, like right. Vue, React, none of that. No, no. Again, my thesis, and I talk about this in the book, is that your first hundred customers, like they're not really going to care if your page reloads, you know, like, so what? There's... A lot of that front end stuff, the, the React, Knockout, View, it, it's, it, it is really nice and slick when you have that interactive interface and the page doesn't need to refresh. Like I, I get it, but I think just for me from a MVP++, meaning MVP that like generates income and can kind of get you your first bit of comfort, it doesn't, it's not required. And, and I think it really detracts from like solving the main thing, the main problem that, that your app solves is not like how slick is my UI. It's it's like, what's the output? Is the data accurate? Is Does it work? You know, is it delivering value? Value is not created on having a really slick front end. You know, this, <laughs> it's so funny because like you're, you're speaking exactly what I've been, what I've had this like hunch and what I've been starting to come around to this idea that like these trendy JavaScript frameworks, React, Vue, 
you know, Angular. All the developers are so like so many. When you start to outsource to developers, they immediately want to go to using Vue for everything, and and even when you ask for like when you ask for advice on which stack or which tech strategy should we go with for this new app idea from outside developers, you get those recommendations. Yeah, go with Vue. It's the latest thing. You could do all this like live browser interaction stuff. But when I talk to coder entrepreneurs, people who want to build a product as fast and as cheaply, but as efficiently as possible, they're saying skip JavaScript, not skip JavaScript, but skip the frameworks and just yeah. stick with plain vanilla, you know, just get what you need built into it. And and even that can still be clean and nicely designed, you know? Yeah, it can. Yeah. It can. That being said, I think if I were to start over today and like if I'm learning to code right now and I needed to choose, I would probably learn Node and mm-hmm. React. I think that's what I would do. Yeah. Just because it seems like all the crypto stuff is going that way. But for someone who's just learning to code for the goal of building your own products, I guess I'm curious about about that. Like how long, you know, we're going to jump around a lot in this interview to get parts of your story here. But I'm, as you know, I'm into this right now, trying to learn to code so that I could build some products. Yeah. I'm curious, like how long did it take from the time you decided to learn how to code until the point where you could build one of these, you know, side projects? Yeah. Um, the better part of two years mm-hmm. working on it fairly part-time-ish. So another great interview that you had with Ryan Culp, this was maybe like two or three episodes ago from this point right now, he talked about going to Thailand for like 40 days and immersing himself in coding. For most of us with families and and, and if you're doing this like with a day job, uh, he was able to quit, but Again, like as, as you get on an age and like other constraints start to appear, that may not be an option. Yeah. But I agree with him that that is a great way to do it because you do need these like, he called it like four hour, like two four hour blocks a day to just kind of immerse yourself. Yeah. I really enjoyed that interview with Ryan. It was great. No, like the whole time I was, I was like so jealous because he could just pull these like all nighters at will and like yeah. take a month in Thailand. And yeah, I've got little kids like that's just not an option. <laughs> when your kids are waking up at 630, no matter what time you went to bed, yeah. um, and <laughs> the code is just not an option. Yep. So I, I didn't have kids yet when I took this on, but I, I did have a pretty intense day job. Like I was also a co-founder of a venture backed business when I started learning to code. So to really get at the heart of your question, how did I learn? I had uh, just decided that I needed to learn specifically how to build on a web framework. Like I just kind of understood at a high level, you have a browser, the browser is pinging a server, server is returning this text um, in the form of HTML. And then the browser renders that into like the nice visual, like pretty components that we see. So like I got that, but I've just really, really needed to double click down and understand. And and I'd heard about model view controller, um, MVC frameworks. I, I just, I needed to understand what is a model? What is a view? What is a controller? How do they interact with each other in the context of a web app? So at that time, um, CodeIgniter, which is a PHP-based web framework, I don't think anybody uses CodeIgniter anymore, but we had built my VC-backed business on CodeIgniter. Uh, So this was a screenwriting software for people to write screenplays online. And we had wrapped that software around CodeIgniter. So I had some familiarity with it. I was able to watch my engineers build on top of it. And then later we redid all of that into Ruby on Rails, which was also an MVC framework. So I distinctly remember my, uh, I don't know if we were married at the time, but I guess probably we were. My either fiance or uh, wife, we were in Vermont on like kind of this, we went up to Stowe towards like your neck of the woods-ish. And I just remember like that night I did stay up really late because I had like, it finally clicked the way this like model view controller stuff works and why certain code sits in a model and certain code sits in a view, certain code sits in a controller. And then like, I just remember that night distinctly because like that's when it all sort of gelled. And I was maybe three or four months into just like banging my head against the computer at that point. Yeah. After that, it was like relatively 
smooth. I call it like hiking because you're still like going uphill. It's still kind of difficult. It's like rocky terrain, mm-hmm. but it was like manageable after that. It was like I'd sort of traversed the major incline, huffing and puffing, like pulled myself up onto the ledge. And then like, okay, now I can see the path. Yeah. And, and like, that was really it. It was like understanding MVC was it. And then after that, you know, now I feel like I could really build anything. It may not be the most beautiful. It might take you a while. You might be slower than an experienced yeah. dev, but you could figure it out. I may not have the best, but I, I think I can do it. And understanding MVC is is like really the crux. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I um I went back and forth on like, should I go down the path of learning Rails? And I started that path for a little bit, just thinking that like Rails is so well established and it's kind of tried and tested and and well known great community around it. But then I ultimately, now I'm diving into Lar- PHP and Laravel, and I want to get into learning more JavaScript. But the SaaS that I've been working on, which I outsourced to, to devs, is built on Laravel. So at least I have that that I could look at. I've been working with WordPress for a long time. So, you know, I could work with Word, and I have a couple of WordPress plugins. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I'm going through Laracasts now, and it's still very early on. And this gets into the, I think, the parallel entrepreneurship thing. But like, my big problem now is finding enough time to devote to going through the Laracast. So just going through the lessons, um, I'm nowhere near being able to build an entire app, you know, but it's like, I started this. I remember on the flight to microconf, I was, I was working through a bunch of lesson videos (laughs) and I made some great progress there. And then I got home and my main business, I I had a ton of stuff to do for the past month. Couldn't even look at code for like a whole month. Now this week, I'm trying to dive back into it. And it's like, oh, shit, I got to go back and re- redo those videos because I already forgot everything, you know, from a month ago. Yeah, I think just the way that I learn and probably, uh, I don't know, it, I think most people would benefit from having a project that like you're really passionate about building and then still using the videos and using the tutorials but picking out like the problem that you have right now, if it's like authenticating users or connecting to a database or figuring out like whatever the templating lingo is so that your dynamic information displays correctly on a page. Yeah, like it was it was Twofer that essentially taught me how to code. And to answer your, your original question, yeah, it, it took took the better part of, of two years, I'd say to go from deciding that I was going to do it to launching it with a paywall. Yeah. So let's get into the story. Like, how did you even get to that, like, aha moment of like, okay, it's time to learn to code. Why don't we go all the way back? You know, where did you start out in terms of, you know, becoming a business owner? Like, where did you start at a, at a job and then leave and have that all start out for you? I, I think I'd always had the bug to do it. And I didn't start my first business until I was in graduate school. I had went from... UC Berkeley to LA, I worked for Navigant Consulting, kind of this management consulting uh, company. It's where I met my co-founder. He went to UCLA Business School. I went to the Harvard Kennedy School, um, studied public policy, which was kind of tied more into what I stuff that I did at Berkeley. I was flush with cash from student loans. I had the m- most money and was accumulating the most debt I'd ever had. And I decided to like, hey, let's roll the dice. Um, we had an idea to build this online app for screenwriting. So um, was in grad school. We were running that on the side. Can you describe that app? Like, what is it? Yeah, it was basically um, before there was Google Docs, there was a company called Rightly that Google bought. And they were one of the first to use these new, newish um, JavaScript frameworks to do like cloud-based writing. And screenwriting um, is essentially a highly structured Word document, like a, any kind of screenwriting software. There are these like hotkeys, tabs, and um, man, it's just been actually that long. I think it's like mostly these tab, uh, it's like tab controls that'll toggle between like character name, action, dialogue, like all that kind of stuff. So anyway. Right. So like if you've ever read like a script for a show or something, it, it has like a certain format on the page. It has a very strict format. It's very strict formatting rules. Um, so there was box software that you could install locally. We wanted to be like the online version of that box software. Mm-hmm. It sounded like a like really interesting opportunity. There wasn't anyone doing that at the time. So we built that. We, we grew it up to 80,000 screenwriters, but we couldn't really monetize it. And that, that was the challenge. Like I don't think we ever broke 15K in MRR that full time. So we'd raised like 300,000. 
um, like fast forwarding, I had decided to get a, a dual master's at um, the Sloan uh, School of Management at MIT. Thought like, wow, this entrepreneurship stuff is pretty cool. So I just wrote about that in my application. And hey, fortunately, they accepted me. When you decided to go to MIT, you still intended to run your own businesses? Or did you want to go into working for another company? No, I, I specifically did that business program to buy some more time and uh, and then hopefully some more resources so that we could make something out of this company. We called it Script at the time. So applied to like business school, comp or business plan competitions. I, I did the entrepreneurship track at uh, MIT Sloan, graduated. And yeah, like we still like we, we really, it, it wasn't working. We had a lot of interest. My co-founder did a great job of building out this this community and, and getting interest in LA because he was in Los Angeles. But when push came to sub, we, we just couldn't get the numbers to work. So we pivoted over to scripted.com. And this was where we took the best writers from that screenwriting app, made them the supply side of a marketplace where you could hire writers to do blog posts and stuff. Essentially, we figured out it's a lot easier to sell blog posts than to sell screenplays. Right. What year was this that you that you made the switch to Scripted? 2011. So we, we launched Script in 2008. We pivoted in 2011, and we were able to raise a million-dollar seed round. Did you have Script.com? We owned R-I-double-P-E-D, like ripped, like ripped the paper. <laughs> huh. <laughs> so Script. But I did own Scripted. Uh, normal English spelling, S-R-I-P-T-E-D. And that's still up. Scripted.com is like still a thing, still going strong. Funny little story. I just emailed the guy who owned that um, and traded him a Red Sox hat uh, as I was in Boston at the time huh. for that domain. Like He wow. asked me to mail it to his nephew and I did. And uh, he transferred the domain. <laughs> Sometimes all you have to do is ask. You might be regretting that trade. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, so... We ended up raising $16 million, uh, total for that business, grew it to close to 40 employees. And that like just really rode the wave of content marketing, which yes. 2011, 2012, that's really starting to kick in as every company is doing blog content. Yep. Yep. We were riding that wave and we were the first like really dedicated, first venture backed, dedicated content marketing marketplace. The choice to go venture back, like, was that just an assumption from the start? Like you guys always knew you were going to do that? Like, yeah. Did you consider not doing that? Like what was? Um, <laughs> no, we, we did not consider bootstrapping scripted. Um, I think three years in, we were both just so ready to get some relief, you know, like start paying ourselves market rates. I was living in San Francisco losing money every month, like literally credit card debt was like piling up every month. Um, my wife was working at a cupcake store and we were paying ourselves next to nothing in that script to pivoting over the scripted um, period. So we just didn't, we didn't have the luxury of bootstrapping. And I, I write about this probably in more detail than I should on, on Medium about lessons learned from I'd say over-investing in sales, not understanding our marketing funnel well enough, essentially not acting like a bootstrapped company would, not in like the penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of way, but in the respecting, respecting the money and feeling the burn. And I think we, we sort of lost touch with that. And so, you know, and, and unfortunately, that business just didn't work out. So, so if I understand correctly, like you had a... a it's a two-sided marketplace, right? So you had yeah. you had a lot of writers who are available through the the platform that you guys had. Yeah. But it was going out and get and doing sales and getting companies to put in projects. Yeah. We were demand constrained. The opposite problem of Lyft and Uber. We had more than enough cars and we had plenty of writers, but just not enough businesses coming in. Uh, it's like a, it's a competitive market. Price per word, especially in, in like the SEO and the high volume game, is sort of a race to the bottom. There's a lot of pricing pressure. Right. And, you know, and, and we wanted to pay our writers at least 10 cents a word. How did that model work? So like the customer pays per word and then scripted takes a cut and, and you pay out the writers? Originally, we were we would take 65% of the transaction. So um, that, that was, you know, very high for a marketplace. And as a result, we curated the entire thing it was like the businesses would put money into a black box 
and we would return writing to them. And 35% of that would go to the writer and 65% would go to us. That model, we ended up changing. Um, we opened it up, dropped that take rate down to a more normal, like 10-ish percent, and then introduced a subscription to access the marketplace. So we had like a SaaS model base and then a variable like transaction fee marketplace on top of the SaaS model. So we were making money um, two ways. Complicated things a little bit, but also made the revenue more predictable. And uh, after we sold Scripted, um, the, the acquirer has continued on with that model and uh, continues to, to grow it. So I want to get up to the sale in, in a minute, but I, you know, I run Audience Ops, which is a, a similar market. Like it's, it's blog content as a service, but it's not an automated two-sided marketplace SaaS kind of deal. It's, it's very much a service, right? Yeah. I'm curious to know in, in Scripted, you know, one of the things that we run into is clients want edits and they and some clients, you know, it's more difficult to research their audience than others. And yeah. and we are very productized and very process oriented and we have ways to manage all those scenarios. But I'm curious how that worked out in a scripted marketplace where it seems like you and your team are a little bit more hands off and it's more about putting the the client and the writer in contact together. Like how did that kind of play out? Yeah. So um, in the old model, it was like very regimented, very automated. You got, I think we did one round of edits was was always included. And if you needed more, we said, just reject. Like if we can't get it right after one round of edits, then reject it and we'll start over. And if you reject a piece, we don't charge you for it. We still paid the writer. So the whole idea with that, what I still call the black box model, is that it would be very scalable. It was like a technology-driven approach to um, essentially a, to a content agency. And that was the original thesis, is, is that we could code our way through this content creation process. Um, I think for many reasons, that original hypothesis just proved, proved to be flawed. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we learned a lot. We, uh, so we transitioned into an open marketplace removed the black box like just instead of it being opaque we made it transparent you could communicate directly with the writer we uh i think right around the time that we sold we had um copy editing also as a service you could just buy more edits like just marketplace style if you know a la carte you could you could buy additional reviews um i think we still had a pretty generous rejection policy we'd uh we'd still let you reject for a reason we pay the writer half what they would have gotten and you don't pay anything. But with that change, you know, we were able to remove, like we had like a freelance operations team, um, that the overhead fell significantly. And so not coincidentally, that model change um, coincided with the big layoff because we had, you know, we we're also, I think that that burn was catching up to us and our investors were starting to raise some warning flags that we can't go on like this. So like we needed to start to move cash flow the other direction. So this was also kind of an elegant solution to that. Like we can still run this business at the same volume with fewer headcount by letting the marketplace do more of the work. Right. What what year was that that you made that switch? Yeah, that first big layoff was like end of 2015. We ended up doing another one about a year later. Okay. And so in 2015, what's, what's your mindset in terms of scripted as a business? Like you're, you're optimistic on this change. Yeah. It can change the model. It can change the trajectory of, of the business. I'm in this for the long haul at that point. Is that what you're thinking? Or yeah. like when did the idea of selling or, the, or that prospect come about? The, um, the idea of selling came about um, because – so we had raised this venture debt and we – I think it had kind of lost track of when that debt would come due. And um, all of a sudden, the bank started to withdraw the principal from our, our account. So that um, like really set a hard timer on, I mean, that, that, that kind of shrunk our, our runway, um, so to speak. And the current investor, so simultaneously, our business was like, we're not in a really strong position to raise new outside funding. Our current investors were already kind of skittish, and this just made them more skittish. In 2015, my co-founder resigned as CEO. We brought in a new outside CEO. I was still like kind of background operations, marketing, sales in that period. 
we brought on the outside guy to sort of put a new face to the company, like maybe look better to outside investors. He's like good looking, um, really talented general manager, had previous marketplace experience, just slightly older guy. Like he looks really good for his age. Yeah. An experienced, like, yeah, so- someone to, to turn it around. Sort of, yeah, a more mature face, I guess I could say. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, that didn't work either. He had to return, like, he left after 11 months for a few different reasons. And then they gave the company to me to run as CEO. But they gave it to me, it was pretty clear that it would be a small miracle for them to feel comfortable putting money in. More likely scenario is that the whole thing was just going to implode. And the best case scenario, best case, still not great odds, um, would be to sell, um, even sell at a big loss. So, you know, that is what ended up happening is we, we sold to a private equity firm um, that was able to pay off our debt and investors, fortunately, it didn't, didn't go well for them. Uh, but the scripted name, scripted brand survives. The uh, staff at the time, we cut down to six people. Um, they all got jobs at the new, like the acquiring company, uh, Xenon Ventures, uh, gave everyone a chance to stay on. And uh, so I think that worked out for the remaining employees, worked out for writers, worked out for customers. So when was the, the sale? That was 2017. Yeah, kind of early 2017. Okay, so about a year ago from today. Yeah, just over a year ago. So as you're, as you go through that sale, I mean, I'm, I'm sure like, I'm sure that must've been a pretty crazy, uh, like mental whirlwind of, of everything going on. Yeah. Well, just to get a little personal for a second too. Um, my second daughter was just born. Um, and I, I write about this on medium. I got a little surprise diagnosis of thyroid cancer and like literally Four days after our big final layoff down to six people, I had to get my thyroid removed. Oh, man. And, you know, deal with that. I'm fine. But that was like this kind of the realization that like, hey, this company, I'm not going to get rich on this. Um, And in fact, this is going to be sort of a big pain in the ass for the next year. We're going to have upset investors, upset employees. But now it's on my shoulders to kind of resolve this thing. Daughter number two, born, and then I go in for my like, hey, I'm just going to get a physical because you know, I'm going to be a dad again. I want to make sure I'm good and strong. Sorry, thyroid cancer. Wow. Yeah, that was kind of a crazy time, but um, got through it. Can't even imagine. Wow. Uh, I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, just just going through. So so getting all that news. Yeah. And then the birth of your of your daughter, and then the the report from the doctor. I mean, like, like, did you know at that point that your mission at that point was like, okay, exit the business, find someone to buy it, so that I can move on. This is yeah. I mean, it definitely influenced it. Um, but now to tie it all back to parallel entrepreneurs. I mean, it almost sounds like just back to the business side of it. Like, you're like, was it difficult to find a buyer? Like, or was that was that a pretty fast solution? So when. We- when we decided that we were going to sell, we, we had six months of runway. And um, and that's not a lot of time to sell a business, especially one that is distressed and like, you know, needs to sell. Um, the, the adage goes like companies are bought, they're not sold. So to be in a position where we, we need to sell is not, it's not good. And deck is stacked against you. But to, uh, to again, like tie this back to the parallel entrepreneurship premise, I found the buyer for scripted actually through twofer twofer was kind of like coming along at this point which like helped me just personally from a like risk reduction and i I go through this in book and talk to guys like josh pigford and others who also like they de-stress they um kind of manage their day job ups and downs by having other projects where they're in control and it's kind of fun so that was twofer for me Wow. So even through all that, through all the craziness with scripted and, and everything else going on in your life, you, you still carved out time to learn to code <laughs> and the idea of, of like launching side products, software products. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, like Twofer was, was like kind of free and clear. Like it was, it was soaring, like it was doing really well. It, it, it actually was paying me more than, than my day job than scripted was. My income from scripted 
was less than my income from Twofer. My personal income from Scripted was less than my personal income from Twofer. So that was like, that was really helpful, you know, to top it off with like financial stress. We had just bought a house. Like, I think if I didn't have Twofer and I was super worried about Scripted and like, oh my God, like that financial burden would have been, you know, I don't know, even harder. So there was that piece, but then also the Twofer started to get some acquisition interest. And what kind of, I mean, what kind of growth, if you're open to sharing any like numbers on that, like, yeah, well, um, yeah, back in those then that period, Twofer has unfortunately uh, started to plateau for the last year or so. But but I mean, like when you initially launched it, which was what, 2016? Uh, I launched Twofer, the paywall up in 2013. Oh, wow. Oh, so you coding actually goes back all the way back to then. Back to then. Yeah. Okay. I thought this was more of a recent thing. Yeah. No. Um, I So that, that two-year period when I was building Twofer was really like... 2011 to all of 2012. Oh, okay. So even throughout the build of Scripted, you're doing these side projects. Yeah, because I'm, I'm watching the engineers build Scripted. And you know, we, we uh, I'm also then watching them rebuild from PHP into Ruby on Rails. And you know, they did that. And then two years later, I did that for Twofer. So I, I decided like, okay, Ruby on Rails is really where it's at. So um, it took me a couple of years to then learn Ruby on Rails. And then I, I converted twofer from php to, to ruby on rails yeah um a lot that in 2015 let's uh let's talk about parallel entrepreneurship for, for a minute like how is that even possible like like people listening to this must be like oh my god how do you even manage your day where do you put those hours and you have kids and it's like how do you do this and, and this is something that i've been thinking a ton about I just literally just this morning i tweeted i, I was thinking about how Right now, I'm trying to learn to code. This summer, I'm trying to, you know, be more committed to working out and doing all these other things in my life aside from my main business. My thing now is like the things that I really want to build that are not built yet, prioritize those first, do them in the mornings, and I can basically run my main business like in the afternoons. What kind of uh, structure, how do you think about managing multiple ventures? So um, the high level answer to that is like looking for places where you can easily do multiple things at once like win-win-win scenarios and in my life right now the biggest most effective my favorite like triple win is actually it's more like a quadruple one now I think about it is I take my daughters to school most days three days a week I jog them in the double stroller to school it's like kind of up this hill like steep steep hill down across freeway, down around. It's about two miles, uh, roughly maybe a mile and a half, two miles each way. It's like the perfect workout, you know, pushing like 60 pounds in a double stroller. So that A, it gets them to school. It gets me a workout. I um, bring my dog, so he gets a walk. The fourth one is my wife also works from home and, you know, she likes to have a little bit of downtime with the house to herself. So I give her roughly two hours. So I'll just take my time and I hang out at the preschool and uh, and give her two hours at home alone. So that's like four things that I can do that benefit everybody. When I was in grad school, it's like kind of easy to get these two master's degrees together. They actually, you, you do a year and a half at Harvard, a year and a half at MIT, and you get two master's degrees. When I was at Berkeley, I did two um, bachelor's degrees. It was I just kind of like found a way to do it. And I still had a whole semester to spare and took like music and Latin. And so you know, I don't, I didn't have to sacrifice anything by doing the dual degree thing. So in this context, I think with Scripted and Twofer specifically, it's not a coincidence that Twofer is a SaaS, was a SaaS the whole time, and Scripted moved from like pure marketplace to SaaS plus marketplace. SaaS was like working so well for Twofer. I was like, guys, like we got to find a way to turn scripted and to like build some kind of like SaaS model into this. And, um, you know, I don't think we would have sold it without that just because of the, like the predictable revenue that you get out of that it just makes it way, way easier to sell. You know, not to mention the buyer for scripted contacted me originally with an interest in Twofer. Um, learning to code was, I think, a tremendous help with me and my interactions with the engineering team, my ability to then, uh, as I got better at Ruby on Rails, like I actually had a fair amount of code like pushed into our repository when we needed to. I was our, I was leading our sales team and was also sales ops. 
when we needed to get um, scripted data into our Salesforce you know, instance, I just coded that stuff myself and like would push it to the engineers. You know, they'd tear my code to shreds usually, but I you know, I do it right. Like I'd pull requests, like blah, blah, blah. They give me feedback, I'd fix it. And, you know, we'd, we'd iterate on it. But um, I was essentially like going through the agile, like engineering process that we had set up at Scripted and- Like learning as needed for, to solve a certain problem. And then that you take what you learned and you can fold it into your other projects. It was a skill that I learned through Twofer, through building Twofer that I think tremendously benefited my ability to add value at Scripted. One of the things that I'm kind of struggling with right now is, because I've always done multiple things. Like I've had the productized course and community, some coaching there. I've got audience apps. I've got some WordPress plugins. I do some conferences and I've been working on on a SaaS. Like I, I'm not new to context switching. And, and, and you're a dad and a husband and like yeah, all yeah. that too. And I'm trying to do music and I'm trying to mow the lawn. I'm trying to get get in shape, you know, all that stuff. But like, the thing that I'm thinking about now is like a challenge is that like, even if I can devote a morning or every morning to learning to code, the switch between like operating a business, running a business and managing a team, I've got like a team of like 30 people working on audience ops and like the skills and the, and the tasks involved in that, whether it's like, it's a lot of writing of processes, writing emails, Slack, sales calls, meetings to, okay, now I'm in learning mode. I've got to go through courses or just hack away at, at projects like in quiet, you know, several hour sessions that like switch in mode is really tough. Yep. And it's been several years since I've really committed myself to like learning a big new skill. I The last few years I've been all about, okay, I've done enough learning. Now it's time to execute and build and build and build. And, and like now it's like I've got to learn to slow down again and go back to learning. You know, it's it's kind of tricky. Yeah. So First of all, I think it's awesome that you have a 30-person team for audience ops. Uh, I didn't know that. That's something that I aspire to. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the opposite. I'm trying to build software so that I don't have to have such a big team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish that that's like kind of where I want to get. Maybe like a team of four or five. But so anyway, the context switching. I think and I just learned this by having this conversation with other people too, um, especially other engineers. If I had a superpower... I think my ability to context switch would be it. And it, it's a double-edged sword because it can come off as kind of cold to people. Um, I get over things quickly. Like I didn't mourn over scripted. Um, like I was sad the day of the layoffs and like going through that. But you know, I slept fine that night. And like, so I don't really hold grudges either, but I also, you know, like I just sort of move on pretty quickly. Uh, on like a macro scale. And I think that is in some ways like hurt some relationships. I understand that too. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be really good at, at compartmentalizing for better or worse, you know, and, and like, you know, I've got stuff with like, you know, people in my family going through stuff, these, these relationships. It's like, I, I do devote my attention and focus to them when I'm with them. But when that conversation is done, it's like, okay, back to work. Like, yeah, you know, so then you, you do that at kind of a micro scale. Too. And I mean, for coding, it's really, really difficult to um, code in like small chunks of time. So I don't think there's really any way around that. But um, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, I find trips to be, whether it's like flights or even a road trip, to be a good like forcer for me to like, yeah. you know, because if I'm on a flight, Wi Fi sucks or it's non existent. So it's like, I might as well just do some projects. Literally, just this weekend, my family took like a last minute road trip to visit my brother in Massachusetts. And I asked my wife if she could drive most of that road trip so that I could sit shotgun and put the headphones on and do coding lessons. Nice. <laughs> it's like just forces myself to actually get it in there, you know, somewhere. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and maybe it's just sort of like a muscle. It sort of takes practice. You know, I find that when I context switch in between businesses, like any given day, I try to put some attention into all three of them it's sort of a relief. Like, you know, I, I, I just go for a walk around my backyard, like go in talk to my wife a little bit. And then like, okay, now I'm switching out of two for mode. And now I'm into like Enlistio or Vox Loca. Um, I found like just some sort of physical break um, really helps. But yeah, like when I'm working on Enlistio, I'm like, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking either other company. Well, the other thing that I found recently in the last couple of months is, um, I could work less on a business and 
get just as much, if not more done. Right. Yep. Like, you know, working out this year and then going out for, you know, riding on the bike has become a priority for me. I do it every day now. Good. But I don't have extra hours to devote to like, I have to be home with the family at a certain time and we do dinner and like night times are off limits. I don't even have the mental space to work at night. So I only have my daytime and I do breakfast with, with the kids. So like basically between like eight, eight thirty AM to five is basically when I usually work. Yep. But if I want to fit other, other things in there, whether it's learning to code, working out, even playing music, doing stuff like that, I have to put it in that eight to five. So yep. that means I'm going to be working five hours instead of eight on, yep. on audience ops or whatever. And been doing that this year and sales are up. The team is up and the, the systems are running like it's, know. you know, stuff still still ships, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's because you probably it's forcing you to be more efficient and do fewer things better. And that's like always what everybody says, fewer things better rather than doing a lot of things, which is almost an argument against parallel entrepreneurship. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think like it, it, what it really boils down to is um, having a little bit more insurance, finding motivation and inspiration from a lot of other projects which helps you be more efficient with like the whatever you're working on at the moment i think there is a limit to parallel entrepreneurship i don't think you can run 10 companies at once at least not without a team um like maybe you could be the the, the head of like a little private equity shop like the company that we sold um scripted to you know he's 10 things going at once but he has a whole staff yeah. So as we're in the middle of uh, 2018 here, wh- where do you see the rest of this year, next year looking like for you? So you have these three SaaS properties that you built. Yep. Are you going in that direction of like, let's build a portfolio of small SaaS companies or or what? Yeah. So I would love to get to a point where I could either offload one of them, sell one or two, and then focus on one for a little bit and do it in a way where I'm simultaneously like bringing on some additional help. I want to be able to take a vacation. Like I want to be able to actually step away from these businesses for two weeks, like off the grid, off the grid, which I just have done. And I don't have the luxury of doing that right now. So that's kind of my goal is to sell off one or two, hopefully by this time next year. Uh, Like if it happened this year, opportunistically, that would be great. But I give myself to like Q2 next year and then double down on whatever one is left and, and seems to be working best and then bring on some like operational support and then kind of get used to that. And if I need to cushion that, um, because I'm really wouldn't probably wouldn't be making much money with the extra headcount, but I ought to have a little bit of padding from from the sales. That's kind of the way I'm thinking about it now. This like solo strapping approach and been doing it for a year now and I'm not terribly exhausted, but is are you purely solo? Like nobody's on customer support or anything like that? No, like it's like literally just me on all three of them. Yeah. It's so it's it's kind of like nonstop. I have flexibility in that I can, you know, I can like turn it off for an hour, but like I'd like to turn it off for a week. You know, and I just can't do that right now. So that's what I'm that's what I'm working on next. That's kind of like the next version of this lifestyle, this like parallel entrepreneurship stuff is to not not be completely solo. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I could be wrong about this, but these seem simple. And like these three products seem simple enough that the customer yeah. support load doesn't seem terrible. No, you're right. It's not. Um, and that for better or for worse has been why I just keep doing it myself because I can. Like it's, it's not overwhelming. I actually like interacting with customers. Like I also want to be the one doing it. And it's important for, for the founder to talk to customers. It helps. The customers like it. You know, they, they like that they can get to me um, and they like that I'm responsive and they like that um, I, I demonstrate to them that I want to interact with them. And you hear from them what they really care about. Exactly. Which is like, really valuable. So like, well, shoot, do I really want to outsource this? I don't know. I could outsource some development. So, okay. Like you have the three basically established SaaS companies like, yeah. and you're looking to offload two of them. Are, are you still hacking at, 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 at like a fourth? Are, are you ever, are you still ha- like, do, you know, coding projects or at this point it's like, okay, enough coding. Let's just get focused. I have other projects that are not making money that are up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, they're just kind of like, um, 
So there's there's ENPS.co, which um, is like Employee Net Promoter Score. It's another software app I built, just spun up. It gets a decent amount of organic traffic that I don't want to shut it down. I have thinboxapp.com, which measures your transactional email volume and tells you when you send too many to the same person. Like you could mm. sort of set a threshold. Like if my app sends more than four emails a day to a single person, then I want to know because that's like, I don't want to spam my own users. Yeah. So, and like those are up, they're live, but they're not making money. And I just kind of have them there. Um, I really want to learn how to code Solidity or the uh, that's that's Ethereum's programming language or whatever the Solidity is for EOS. Uh, I keep hearing about like those guys have just raised tons and tons of money. I'm curious about blockchain, but I just don't have time to get into the coding behind it. You know, like everyone else, I whatever whatever I like bought some Ethereum, bought some altcoins, but like I'd really love to build an app on Ethereum. Yeah, I think I can do it if I just got through the learning curve. Time, <laughs> there you go. And <laughs> you know, yeah. So like selling one or two of my businesses would give me that flexibility again. I can like hit the reset button. Like after I sold scripted, it's kind of like boom, hit the reset button. It's been like a year and a half. Maybe in six months, I want to like hit the reset again and sort of start over. And um, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Well, Ryan, this is, you know, just fascinating stuff. Your your whole story up up until now is just really just a roller coaster ride. And uh, and it's still, you know, really exciting how how you've been able to, you know, hack and put these things together, the these established uh, SaaS products and seeing where these go as we go ahead. So yeah, thanks. No, thanks, Brian. Um I mean, yeah. kudos to you too. I, I, I love your story as well. And um, I actually, I, I should have done a little more research on your background. I, I know of audience ops, like, of course, with the scripted stuff. So just so funny. Oh, no, yeah, uh, it's, it's cool. I mean, I like same here. Like, I, I don't, I really didn't dig into your other stuff. I just, you know, we talked briefly at microconf. I was like, all right, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff to, to dig into here. So, uh, so yeah, awesome. So, so funny. Anyway, kudos to you too, man. Yeah. Really great stuff. Right, cool. All right. All right, now before we wrap up, let me ask you, what'd you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you, you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one. Mm-hmm.